So 74,000 a year. 63,568. Yeah, 3494 an hour for my W2 position, $55 an hour for my acute PRN position. Now I make $37 an hour. Um, that's after several raises. I am making $49 an hour for the 1099. Hello, I'm Megan Berg. And I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. And we're two SLPs on a mission to arm our colleagues with the knowledge they need to increase their pay and help elevate our field as a whole. Wage stagnation continues to be one of the major issues plaguing the field of SLP, and we are here to bring transparency around this issue. Each episode, we interview SLPs and ask direct questions about money so that all of us can use that information to better negotiate our salaries. If you're curious about what other SLPs make and want to know what you can do to make sure you don't get caught in the trap of never being paid what you're worth, this is the show for you. Okay, so I always um, tell my students that I'm more than happy to help them navigate their offers and go through their benefits package and negotiate their salaries. So just yesterday, within an hour, three of them messaged me um, about their offers. And two of them were very similar. They were both um, private pediatrics. One was offered $52,000 in Northeast Ohio. Um, oh with a $2,000 signing bonus after she had been there for 90 days. So if you do that math, I'm not good at math. That's why I'm a speech pathologist. But I think it came out to like $19 a week or something for her to sell her soul to this company for two years. And, and really, it was just a one-time thing. It wasn't being added to her salary. Um, You're saying the bonus is $19 a week for her to commit to two years because if she doesn't stay there for two years she has to pay back that bonus yep. so my advice to her if, if this company is a good fit for you once they pay you that sign-on bonus set it aside use it as a reward after you've been there for two years because if you decide you want to leave you'll have to pay it back um and the, the other um offer was fifty four thousand dollars again private pediatrics. Um, this one had an emphasis in deaf and hard of hearing and oral rehabilitation. And this particular student um, was a former teacher of the deaf. So this is her second master's degree that she got. And the offer was $54,000 with a 4% raise after she got her C's. So I, I just did that math. That's 2160 um, after being there for a year. So to me, that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. and it, it, yeah. I'm not even sure how that is a living wage <laughs> at some point. You know, especially both of these girls are single, you know, living alone. They have a mm -hmm. master's degree. Yeah. So their questions were, should I take this? How can I negotiate more? Um, and I think knowing knowing what the going rate is in the area is important and helps for negotiation. But at this point, that looks like it's the going rate. So I told them both I'd have to get back to them because I need to put some thought into how to help them build a case on how to ask for more. 
Yeah, and that is why we are doing this podcast because it's it's tricky to figure out like what is going on with wages for speech pathologists. Like, is it as simple as reimbursement rates are going down and therefore facilities and companies don't have as much money to pay speech therapists? Or is there something else going on that we're not seeing? And I think we all have like varying degrees of financial literacy. And like, I feel really lucky because I grew up with a dad who very early on helped me figure out how to work with money. So like he would teach me about budgeting. I had savings, giving, spending. I had to like keep everything on a ledger on these little index cards. And then when I was a teenager, he went out and got a credit card in my name with like a $500 limit. He taught me about credit scores, all of that. Like, and I think that's a very privileged place to come from to grow up in that and to even have that as a starting point to talk about money. And I think that in general, our society doesn't like talking about money. Like it's like this hush hush topic and we're not supposed to share with people what we make. And I think in general, that conversation is shifting. And I think that's what we want to do with this podcast, right? Is really have open conversations with speech pathologists about where they work, how much they make, um, so that we can all have access to financial information in this field and know how to negotiate better rates. Because I think part of the solution to this problem is SLPs having the skills to negotiate and saying no to these lowball offers. Because the more SLPs that are doing that, the more it elevates the whole field and people start making higher offers because they know that that's what SLPs are expecting. Right. I've seen this too. There's another company. It's It was the third student who messaged me. Um, this company is does not have the best reputation. And I have had lots of friends who are seasoned SLPs who have left this company. And so I am kind of watching them go down the line, offering my students positions. <laughs> and they, instead of making an offer, they've been asking, what is your expected rate? And I've been telling them, I tell every single one of them the same thing. I tell them about the ethics issues, say, really explore it. But if this is a good fit for you, ask between sixty-five dollars and $70,000, because that's what they should be getting paid, I think, in this area. Um, mm -hmm. And it looks like so far, none of them either have taken it or the company is then just not making an offer because they're asking so high. But um, I've been advising all of them to negotiate because if they accept the first offer, if they accept low, that hurts the rest of us in this area who are trying to dig out of these, you know, $52,000 offers, um, which seems very unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to read something that I saw on Reddit last night. So this is from an anonymous user, and they wrote, I feel jealous of SLPs who come from a higher SES background or married a breadwinner. And I won't read the whole thing, but I think a lot of people listening to this might relate to what they're saying. They say, I started grad school at 30 and never married. Now I'm struggling with all the 1099s, fee-for-service work, part-time onlys, and the fact that I haven't been able to get anything with health insurance with all my medical problems. 
It's defeating to one, not only see your profession crumble to the ground around you as stable full-time work with benefits has dried up to contract work or is only offered in some of the most stressful or very remote and inaccessible locations. And two, watch people with a successful work-life balance shy away from admitting they actually don't have to work full-time. It's almost as if SLP has become a hobby for a lot of people who are just looking to pick up a few hours a week or have a career that fits raising a family when someone else is actually the breadwinner. Whew, it's tough. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack, but it yeah. is very relatable. So I, I'll put it out there right now. I am someone who has to work full time. You know, it's I, I don't have that privilege. I have the privilege of having gotten extra degrees and certifications and it's given me a lot of options sometimes to piece together that work. And I also have the privilege of my husband having the health insurance, but although we're on my health insurance now, um, but I, even when I was a quote, stay at home mom, I still had to do what we, most of us would refer to as a side hustle to help pay the bills. So that's, you know, that's a tough place to be in, especially if you're someone who wants to be at home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this episode is really so people get to meet us. So we should probably say our names and who we are. <laughs> and then um, really just be transparent about our situations as well, because that's the whole kind of point of this podcast is as much transparency as possible. So the guests that we're going to have on are all going to be very open about where they work in general maybe not the exact spot or the exact facility, but regionally where they are, and then exactly how much money they're making. Um, A lot of the guests are gonna stay anonymous um, so they can protect their identity. Um, But let's see, do you wanna start Jeanette and introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. I prefer for colleagues and friends to call me Jeanette. Um, I am working in Western Pennsylvania as a full-time college professor. Uh, And then I live in Northeast Ohio where I um, practice clinically. I do a lot of PRN work in skilled nursing facilities, acute care. I have a long history in home health, although I'm not doing that right now. I've done adult outpatient. I've done inpatient rehab. (laughs) I think I've done it all. But right now, my big focus is I I'm growing a mobile fees business. So that's that's what I'm doing for work. Um, and I, I'm licensed in both Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Ohio. So I also do some teletherapy. Let me, I'll, I'll just ask you. So how much do you make at your different jobs? So I'll skip the academia job because that is a whole different ballgame. Although I will say that there is a myth out there that if you get the PhD or the SLPD or the EDD, that you're going to make more money. And that is simply not true. Um, At the end of my PhD program, I was doing PRN only full time. I moved um, to the East Coast to, which was a more expensive place to live, um, to take on my first full time position in academia, and I took a $30,000 pay cut. Um, so that's that's its own thing, but I just want to say that for anyone who's continuing moving on in their education, you likely will not make more money. Um, clinically, I have a 1099 right now that is with the acute care position I have, and I make $65 an hour with that. And then for all 
all of my sniff positions, I make $50 an hour. Now, when I was hired, and we'll be talking about this, I think, as this series goes on, when I was hired right out of school, it was maybe my second year in clinical practice, I was hired by a company for $35 an hour. I had no idea about negotiating, but within a month or two, I had I was loving what I did, so I responded to another ad, and they offered me 50 right out of the gate. And so I did return to the other company and say, hey, I only have so much time because at the time I was working full time in the schools. I only have so much time. If the other company calls me and offers me work, they're going to be my priority unless you can raise me. And they didn't bat an eye. They raised me to 50. Um, later, when I moved three hours west to Columbus, Ohio, the primary place that I had been doing PRN raised me to $55 an hour. When I came back to Northeast Ohio, after I got my PhD, had a lot more clinical training, wrote a book, traveled the country consulting and speaking, um, they raised or they hired me back at $50 an hour. So I have not made a penny more since year two out of school. And I'll just show my age here. I graduated grad school in 2006. So I think since 2007, I've been making $50 an hour doing PRN. You know, that's so interesting. And I think a lot of people, I've been hearing people say this, that the more experience you have in this field, the less you get paid because, because yeah. these, these don't want to pay for experience. They want to pay for the yeah. CFI and there's not a value on experience because I mean, my my personal opinion is that we as a field don't do a good job of communicating our value and what that experience brings. Like they, they don't, people don't see a difference between an experienced clinician yeah. and a CFO. But if you think about that, like what is that seven, again, not good at math, that's like 17 years. What is the cost of living difference in the last 17 years? Like I haven't even gotten a cost of living raise. And you know, the... the the thanks I got for, hey, thanks for working so hard for us. We're going to hire you back at 50. I mean, it just, but, and I have tried negotiating that hire with obviously no success. There have been other other companies that have offered me less and I refuse to work for them. Um, one company in particular called me over and over and over again. And I told the recruiter, do not call me again until you are willing to pay me my value and at minimum what every other company pays me. Yep. She didn't call me back. So. Yeah. And that's the risk. And I think that's what a lot of SLPs are afraid of. And we'll talk a lot more about this with our guests, but that idea of like, if I don't take this, they're gonna. They're not gonna talk to me anymore, and I'm gonna miss this opportunity. And that's oh, especially yeah. true with really coveted jobs and areas that people really want to live in, or settings that people really want to work in. Yeah, because like we said earlier, people are. Well, we sort of alluded to this. People will say yes. So as long as people say yes to those crappy offers, they're going to continue. Yeah. Well, Megan, what what are you making? Um, okay, so I can introduce myself. So Who are people, you? We are. So my name is Megan Berg and I live in Western Montana. I live in Missoula and I graduated in 2015 and I started, my first job was working in a school and I 
I mean, I can't remember what I was making, but I remember that when I ended up moving to Missoula and taking a job at a sniff, I doubled my salary. And at that time, I think I was offered like 30, $38 an hour. And then they gave me a dollar increase per year. Um, but that company eventually, it was locally owned. And like all of the locally owned therapy companies across this country um, had to shut its doors. And that kind of opened the door for a national conglomerate chain to come in. Um, and they matched my salary and I continued to work for them um, until I quit about a year later. But I know that they've been hiring people at a much lower rate than that. Um, but right now I work um, at a skilled nursing facility in a small town of a pop population 2000 people. It's one of the only facilities left that's locally owned. And right out of the gate, they offered me $65 an hour. But like the work there is very, like it'll, it'll maybe be an evaluation two or three times a month. And then I might pick that person up for therapy, but probably not. So there's just not a lot of hours there. <clears throat> and then I also work for a hospital that is owned by a private equity firm. And I work in inpatient rehab, PRN, and I make $42 an hour there. And that one I'm embarrassed about <laughs> because I feel like it's very low. They initially offered me $40 an hour. I'm a single mom by choice with a donor. And so I have to pay for childcare because there's a childcare shortage in Missoula. Um, I've been on a wait list for over nine months and I finally somehow managed to get daycare. And so very excited to start that. But at that time, when I started this job, I was paying $20 an hour for a one-on-one -on -one caregiver, which even that, like, I feel embarrassed about, like, I feel like I'm underpaying caregivers. Um, then let's not talk about what I pay my <laughs> But I did it like seven years and her 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 last day is in July and perhaps I should give her multiple thousands of dollars to make up the last seven years. Well, I don't I don't know. I mean, because then I had somebody I paid someone to clean my house when I was selling it because I had this baby and I barely had time to like move everything. And she charged me $35 an hour. And I was like, if people are paying $35 an hour to clean and I'm only paying $20 an hour for like, you know, the welfare of my child. Like that just doesn't seem fair. But anyway, I told the hospital that I needed to make more than $40 an hour because then basically I'd be making the same amount <laughs> as my nanny and they raised it to 42. So that was the extent okay. of my ability to negotiate. Um, and it was a situation where I felt like if I said, I can't take that, they would have because it's owned by a big private equity firm and it's, you know, somebody in Kentucky or wherever having this phone conversation with me, like they have no wiggle room as opposed to the locally owned company who's plugged into the community. And I think maybe cares a little bit more about those relationships and is going to work harder to recruit people with the hospital. There was just not a lot of wiggle room to negotiate. My last acute care PRN job, I mean, 38, but it was not a t on a 1099. What was it on? A W-2. W-2. And the, 
The job that I have at the acute care hospital right now is my first ever 1099 position. And for people listening, the difference between a W-2 and a 1099 is, is confusing at best. And like, there's all these different state regulations, but basically with the 1099, you're getting paid upfront and they're not withholding any taxes. So at the, at the end of the year, you're responsible for then filing your 1099 with the IRS and then paying taxes on that to the federal government and the state government. Whereas with the W-2, they're, they're paying, they're responsible for paying the taxes as they pay you. But again, that can differ depending on what you tell them to do when you fill out the form when you start working for them. But then also with W-2s, you're entitled to benefits, but you can also get some benefits with 1099. So can you talk about like what, what was the benefit of, of being on a W-2 for you versus a 1099? So I've never been given an option. These, they... It was what it was. I I really prefer the W-2 because it just saves me the time and effort of having to be organized and save money. Um, I do have one, the one company that hired me at $50 an hour all those years ago, I'm still with them. I only left when I was a professor on the East Coast for two years, and that's when I came back. Um, but they, they have the added benefit. They give me a 401k match, which is really nice. And I'm, I, I don't know if there's a vesting schedule, but I'm vested. Um, which means for someone who doesn't know vesting means if your employer contributes to your retirement plan, there's usually a schedule that dictates when you get to keep the money that they have contributed. And it's typically a couple of years, you know, one or, one or two, maybe three years where you might get to keep 25% if you leave. And then, you know, year four, you get to keep 50. And then by year five or six or seven, then you get to keep 100. So as you're considering offers, that's also something to look at. Um, but so that's nice. So it's been a W-2. It's the only place that has ever matched. Although I have had other companies that have let me open a retirement plan and save, they just haven't matched. Um, with the 1099, it's it was the it was the choice. I or I didn't get the choice. It it was the offer. Um, and what you didn't mention was with a 1099, really you're becoming your own business owner. And it made sense right now for me to take it anyway because of my mobile fees company. I, you know, I, I have a business that's established. So where I am withholding taxes. And so I'm a little more organized for that right now. Interesting. I, I had a student who got a 1099 offer a couple weeks ago and I told her it probably wasn't the best idea to take something like that as a CF because there weren't benefits. She's, she's not married. Um, it wasn't guaranteed hours. It's, I, I read over her entire like multi-page contract. She was going to be responsible for her own materials, probably her own computer. And I even said, I bet they're not planning on, on arranging a CF supervisor for you. I said, was that a question you even asked? Would you have to pay someone to supervise you? Um, 
So that's the other thing with a 1099 to look out for is sometimes you need to have your own computer and have your own materials. And um, in the, the hospital, that's not the case. I don't have to provide those things. And I know the rules are maybe a little bit different here than they are for you. Um, so yeah. I, I don't know that I would continue a 1099. It, again, if I was given the choice, I'd go with the W-2. Something to alert our listeners to that um, really, really got me uh, last year. Um, there is a loophole in the federal government withholding system. There is, there is a, um, a rule that if you do not meet a threshold, and it appears that the threshold is different for every company, I suspect, I don't know this, but I suspect they get to set that threshold by number of employees. Um, but if you don't meet that threshold, your company, even if you have filled out the W-2, your company does not have to withhold the federal taxes. So if I know I'm making $50 an hour and I, I get my paycheck and I know what I should make and it's, it's less than that and I say, oh, they've withheld taxes, that's probably just the state and local taxes. So always be aware of that check your pay stubs to see if they are withholding federal taxes. And it's it's actually the company that I still work for that, that helped me through this because I was adjuncting at four universities um, a little over a year ago. And when I filed my taxes, I owed thousands of dollars because none of them withheld federal taxes. Um, and and it all added up. So the PRN company wasn't doing it. They weren't doing it. And thankfully, the HR person with the PRN company said like, oh, here's what's going on. He said, our threshold is $600. He said, sometimes you cover a vacation for us or a maternity leave and you make a ton of money and we withhold. He said, but then there's days where you just, you know, come in and help out or just cover one day during the pay period and we're not withholding then. And he said, so you can have us withhold extra. We can do that. You just have to change what you want us to do. He's like, or just save it yourself. Um, but that was not something that I was aware of. So maybe always check that threshold and, and see, because that was a really crappy position for my family to be in. Thankfully, yeah. we did have a savings, but we drained it. Yeah. Ugh, that's, that sucks. And as we're talking, I'm realizing that I totally said the wrong thing. So my SNF job is 1099 and the hospital job is W-2. But for me, like at the end of the day, it doesn't really make a ton of difference because I'm not getting benefits with either one. And right. Even if I was 1099 with the hospital, I don't think that would change anything except that that's not legal in Montana, really, for the hospital to do that. So um, let's talk about cost of living a little bit because that's something that we'll talk with our guests about and we're using three sort of metrics to help us place cost of living throughout the country since we'll be talking with people from all over the place and i think especially after covid like cost of living has just exploded for everybody and even in places where you typically had a lower cost of living now that people can live anywhere they want like it's rising everywhere so the three metrics that we're using to compare across different places and different people are the cost that you would pay for a two bedroom house like that you would want to live in. So not like a fixer upper or like 
the cheapest house or the most expensive house, but just like middle of the road house that you could move into with two bedrooms. And then we're also looking at the starting wage um, that Target is offering or a similar type of store in everybody's area. And then the third metric that we're looking at is what is the cost of the gallon of gas at the closest gas station. So I'll talk about Missoula and then you can talk about your area. Um, but Missoula is one of those places that I think historically has had a lower-ish cost of living um, because it's so rural and there's not a huge amount of economic opportunity here. Um, but then with COVID, a lot of people were moving in and continue to move in from California and Colorado and Utah, and they're bringing the money that those places have here. And so um, the average cost for a two bedroom house here is about $450,000. And then the starting wage at Target is $15 an hour. And because it's a university town, they can tend to find people who will work for that amount, um, even though it's not really a livable wage here. And then I think a gallon of gas is about $3.50 right now. So what about you, Jeanette? What about where you live? As we've been, I mean, we didn't predispose this. So as, as we've been talking this morning, I'm realizing how very similar the places we live in are from the cost of having someone clean your home to childcare. So my stats are almost exactly the same. Um, Target, the starting wage is 15. We also have, so very specifically, I'm in a small suburb of Youngstown, Ohio, where we do have a university. Uh, we are I am exactly an hour from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and exactly an hour from Cleveland, Ohio. So kind of sandwiched in between two big cities that were very blue collar mill towns at one time. And um, all of that has crumbled. So, you know, there there are people who need work in, in our areas and there's not a lot of industry or, or businesses here. So people will work for $15 an hour. Um, in my town, there were there were only two bed two two bedroom homes. So one was um, four hundred and thirty nine thousand, and um, the other one looked like it was a new build. So it, it was a little bit more expensive. I think it was like four hundred and fifty seven thousand. So I think I'm right there with you at the four hundred and fifty thousand mark for a two bedroom home. And I before we got on, I rechecked. Right now, the average gallon of gas is $3.52. Wow, very similar. That's wild. Mm -hmm. Okay, so there was a question posed or a survey done about how much each generation needs to feel financially wealthy. And baby boomers said they need about $78,000. Gen X said need a, they needed $112,000. Millennials said they needed $133,000. And Gen Z is saying that they need about $171,000 to feel financially healthy. And I think we're just living in this really, really strange time where like inflation mm -hmm. is really high, cost of living is skyrocketing, COVID changed the landscape of everything. Um, corporations are becoming more and more consolidated and private equity and capitalism is expecting more and more profit to be made off of healthcare. And so as cost of living rises, our wages continue to go down and we're kind of at this crossroads where I think we all need to fight and like really advocate for 
our worth and our value because we're going to end up being a profession that's really not able to even like afford a house or be single <laughs> and be able to function in society. You know, um, I've never heard that survey before, but it's so interesting to me because I am your quintessential zennial. Like I am sandwiched right in between. I am like the oldest millennial and the youngest Gen Xer. And I, I identify with both, you know, um, Facebook actually came out my first year of grad school. So I was the last generation to go through, um, a bachelor's program without Facebook. Um, but those numbers that you just gave, like my number in my head is 120, which is like exactly right in the middle of your Gen Xer and your millennials. <laughs> Once again, I fit that that Zennial population. But yeah, 170 something. I'd love to see that number. <laughs> I know, but and like, what's weird is that I think it sounds so high to us. Yeah, yeah. But then when you start doing the math about how much it's going to cost to live in this country or how much it's costing, mm -hmm. like it's really, it's really not that much. I mean, it would be enough to be comfortable, but not really anything more than that. And so the question is, and I don't think this just is in speech pathology, but how do we make that much as speech language pathologists or... Right. Or Therapists and like OTs, PTs, they're not making that much either. Nurses, right. they're not making that much. Right. Right. And I think healthcare in general, everybody's burnt out. Nobody's getting paid enough. I, yeah. It'll be interesting because we are going to be having an episode with guests from the private equity stakeholder project. So we're going to get to learn more about how healthcare companies work, particularly those that are owned by private equity firms. And I, I don't, I have no idea what the solution is. I don't, I really don't know that it's as simple as being able to negotiate well. Mm -hmm. Like, I just, I don't know how you end the patriarchy or end capitalism or transform it into something where we actually value caregivers and actually pay people what they're worth. Because historically, these kinds of positions of, being involved with childcare or being involved with healthcare, like those were women's roles. <laughs> and now we're kind of stuck in this historical framework of those are lesser paid roles because that's how they've been traditionally compensated. Yeah. I I know I've I try to really keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on on social media. And I know I've seen a lot and I, I think we're going to have an episode about this where we talk about W2s and 1099s more. Um, but with SLPs contracting right into the schools and, and skipping the middleman or being a 1099 employee like I am with the hospital and skipping the middleman or starting my own mobile fees business. And now there is there are a lot of other things that you have to do when you own your own business. But skipping the middleman um, seems to be, at least right now, the trend that I see in some of the business groups that I'm in is is that is one way to um, improve what we're bringing in. But again, it does come with a lot of other layers of responsibility and things you have to think about that 
are outside of your normal, I show up, I give my therapy, I do my evaluations, I do my paperwork, and then I go home. And that's all some people want to do. And that's okay. Some people just don't want to have the other responsibilities. So that's still not a great answer for everyone. Yeah. And I did not mention when I introduced myself. And so again, in full transparency, I'm the owner of Therapy Insights. And so that's a company that I started in 2016-ish. And so um, that affords me the privilege of owning my own business and not having to work full-time as an SLP. So I feel like that's something that listeners should definitely know about me and the perspective that I have as we interview all of our guests. So I'm very excited to talk to SLPs from all over the country, all different kinds of settings, all different experiences. Um, And like I said, everyone's going to be completely transparent. Uh, We're going to be giving hard numbers about what everybody makes. um, And that's why most people are choosing to remain anonymous. But the hope here is that these transparent conversations help give everybody the information needed so that when you go to negotiate your next job, um, you have the skills and the knowledge to elevate what you're being paid and therefore that elevates the field as a whole. So thanks everybody for listening and joining in on this conversation. Jeanette has something else very, very important to say. I have an in the moment update. We've been recording for 40 minutes and in the time that I've been recording, I got another student message <laughs> from the same company. She has received an offer from the same company, which tells me probably the student I consulted with yesterday must have turned down the position or asked for the 65 to 70 and they've moved on. Same exact offer where they're not making the offer. They're asking for the preferred range. So this company now has made this exact same offer to four or five students. And if any of them are listening, I'm so proud of y'all for turning this position down. Um, Good for you for standing up for the salary that we all deserve. And this is why, this is why California has legislated, and I think a few other states at this point, that jobs have to, they legally have to post what they're offering as far as pay in their job ad. Um, Because, and and, oh my gosh, so (laughs) this whole idea that we're going to go in and like, we're going to tell our our future potential employer what we think we're worth, like, that is... a that is deeply embedded in the patriarchy. Like this, this idea that we have to negotiate and the more that we're able to negotiate, the more we're going to be able to get paid. Like that doesn't even make sense. Like these companies need to have a rate that they pay everybody. It shouldn't depend on your negotiation skills. It, It shouldn't depend on your gender or your race or any of these factors. It should just be, this is the rate that we are willing to pay to be able to, for somebody to come in and do this job. Um, and there needs to be transparency around that because yeah. we shouldn't be rewarding people that have grown up to be conditioned to be able to negotiate because that's a skill set that not everybody has. It's a personality that not everybody has. Um, and it's just completely unfair. So, yeah, congratulations to the students who are turning down that job. <laughs> that's what it takes for these companies to realize that they're not at that rate. <laughs> Training the next generation to know their value. I love it. Yeah. Yes. 
So before we go, I'll, I'll let you sign us off, but we are going to end every episode with a negotiating tip because we are not in a position where we can just be paid what we're worth. We are still expected to negotiate. So our first tip is we've already talked about it a little bit, but you need to know what the going rate is in your area. And sometimes that's really hard to figure out when we're all told, don't talk about your salary. Um, so if if you have colleagues and friends, start start making it a discussion that you have. If you are a student, your cohort should be discussing the offers that you're getting. Um, and then there are some resources I think that Asha has put out and some people have spreadsheets that they've they've made um, public. So what we're going to do is in our show notes, we will link all of the resources that we can find. If you are a listener and you know of a resource and we have not linked it up, please, please email us at other slpspockets at gmail.com and we will get that sorry, link to the you. Address, the, address, the email address is hello at other slpspockets.com. There we go. There you go. Do you want Sorry, me to say all of that again? I'll just say the email address again. Hello at other slpspockets.com. Okay. So if you have a resource that you know about that we don't have linked, you can email it to our email, we'll get it linked. And then we will be putting together an open document probably on a Google Drive that you can contribute to. So if you're listening and it will be anonymous, you can contribute what you're making, where you live, how much experience you have, what part of the field you're working in. So we can have a resource going as well. We think that's very valuable. So that's negotiation tip number one, you need to know the going rate in your area and then push that envelope a little bit. So if, you know, these $52,000 offers that are coming in, I'm going to tell them you, you need to ask for 60 and, and, you know, push the envelope a little bit. Maybe they'll get a little bit more. I just had that random idea. Can you tell me if this is a good idea or a bad idea? Mm -hmm. Like if you, I mean, generally, unless you've just moved to a new place, like you probably know a handful of other SLPs in your area. So one thing you could do is get together for coffee, bring a bunch of little slips of paper, have everybody write down their hourly rate and like fold it up and put it in a cup and shake it up and then like spill all the numbers out on the table. And that way nobody, if people aren't comfortable sharing what they make, that's yeah. one way that everybody could have access to the information. Nobody knows who made what, but you have, the range right there to look at. Um, and then you can start having the conversation together about how you're going to change and elevate that rate in your region without having to make anyone uncomfortable. Is that a good yeah. idea? It's an excellent idea. Um, it, and with that range, I did, I, I think I even posted it on our Instagram. I did post a tip that someone else um, gave. So it's not my idea that when you're interviewing, like these students are being asked, what is your preferred range? The way that you respond is, I am only interviewing for jobs that pay between X and Z. So these students should be saying, I'm only interviewing for jobs that are paying between 65 and $70,000. So just come back with the range. Yeah, I think at this point, if they're asking you for a range, 
know what the going rate is in the area. And this 65 to 70,000 that I'm suggesting that they ask for is based off of the salary that my friends who have left that company are getting or were getting when they were there. So I know they're paying it. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's the power of knowing the going rate in the area. This is a conversation for another day, but it drives me nuts when these companies offer our new grads less because they don't have their CCCs. Yeah. They've, they've finished their requirements to be a speech language pathologist. Yeah, <laughs> they finished their requirements to be an SLP, right? That They're is just, a whole other conversation. Right. Like, why do we even have the CFY? Why is this unpaid labor that people have to provide as supervisors? Why can't we just graduate with a full degree, with full credentials, like every other <laughs> profession out there? Like, it doesn't make the CFY makes no sense to me, but that is a whole other podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, do okay. you want to sign us off again? Yes. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Um, we really hope this is informative and empowering for everybody out there. Um, email us anytime at hello at otherslpspockets.com if you have any feedback for us or requests. Um, if you'd like to be on the show, if you'd like to um, ask any questions, if you have specific questions about negotiation or anything like that, um, just hello at otherslpspockets.com. All right. Thanks, Jeanette. That was great. Thanks, Megan. We'll see you next time. Yep. Bye. Bye. Next time on Other SLPs Pockets. I think when you go into the interview, know how much work goes into being a bilingual SLP. It's a lot of work. So that work deserves to be compensated. If you like this podcast, please be sure to share it with your SLP friends and continue the dialogue together. The more of us that are having these types of open conversations, the more likely it is that we're all going to be paid what we're worth. If you would like to connect with Jeanette and me, you can reach us via email at hello at otherslpspockets.com. You can also find us on Instagram at otherslpspockets. Pockets.